On December 24, 2004, I proposed to my wife, and on that same night, she gave me a little tiny book that she had purchased from an antiquarian book dealer in England. It's the only book she's ever given me. I, I did just fine spending all her money on books for myself. And, and yet this little book, through all the moves and all the years, kept finding its way to my nightstand. And um, about six or seven years ago, I decided I would read through it. It, it is titled The Unsearchable Riches of Christ by Thomas Brooks. And what I have found now in almost a decade of ministry, of gospel ministry, is that what is said in the first half of that little book is one of those things that I think we all desperately need to learn time and time again. It's based on the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says, For to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the first half of that book is fixated on the subject of gospel-driven humility. Now, one of the interesting things, if you read this book, is that one of the very first things Brooks says in it is how rare in his day in the 17th century, how rare um, humility was even among believers. I almost laughed when I read that, thinking what he would think today in our day and age with all our advancements in technology and all of our scholarship and learning and all of the ways in which we feel like we've mastered the world and we've made the world what it should be. And, and yet, I think what Brooks was noticing in his own day is something we desperately need to notice in our own day. And as I have been reading over the last several years through the letters of the Apostle Paul and preaching through them, I've noticed this as an underlying recurring theme that what the Apostle Paul is constantly doing is he is speaking to problems and issues in the church and at the foundation of almost all of the problems he's dealing with is the issue of pride in the heart of man. It's very interesting, that theme of that no one should boast except in the Lord, seems to find its way into many of Paul's letters at different settings and different places and different times where the apostle is dealing with issues in the church. And as you know, if you've read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it finds its way preeminently in these books. And here at the outset of 1 Corinthians, the apostle is dealing with the issue of division in the church. He's dealing with the issue of members of the church thinking they had become more sophisticated in the world and that they had become uh, worthy of respect and perhaps admiration and they had set up for themselves the teachers that they liked the best. And, and this is going to lead on to 2 Corinthians where super apostles are going to come into the church and they're going to try to turn the people against the Apostle Paul. And in the midst of that controversy, the Apostle writes what he does, especially here, in chapters 1 and 2. And as you know, if you've read through 1 Corinthians, that what Paul is constantly doing is he is trying to apply the gospel to each and every problem in the church and here at the beginning in such a way as to level and demolish and remove the pride that is always resurfacing in the hearts of, yes, even members of the church and, yes, even ministers of the gospel. 
I think it's interesting that as we look at this together this evening and we look at what he writes there in verses 26 of chapter 1 down to chapter uh, 5, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, that the apostle is essentially speaking a word first and foremost to the church to whom he's writing, and then he is bringing himself forth as an example of the very thing he's telling them. Now you're going to see this evening those two things. First, you're going to see that in verses 26 through 31, the apostle brings this discourse about uh, the wisdom of the world and, and uh, the, the Jews wanting signs and Greeks wanting wisdom and how the gospel comes in and Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God and, and, and he overthrows the wisdom of the world and he does what no, no uh, powers in the world can do. He brings that to an end now with a word to this congregation. And he reminds them of what they were before they were in Christ. Notice there in verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I, on an almost weekly basis, have uh, conversations with fellow ministers who are struggling with discontentment. People leave the church because they don't like things in the church. People leave the church because they don't like the way you say something. Uh, the church is a very fragile thing. And, and as I've reflected on our own struggles in ministry at New Covenant, and as I've reflected on the, the struggles of my friends, I've come to a point where I say now to them, isn't that wonderful? Because God almost always wins the victory when he has very little. He did it with Gideon, he cut him back to 300. He did it with David when he spent 15 years of his life fleeing from Saul, and he learned to trust the Lord in, in caves with everyone who was discontent, discouraged, and in debt who came to him, and they were his mighty men. And God would win the victory through foolish means, and God would win the victory through foolish people, and God wins the victory and gets the glory when there's not enough in our opinion. And God took these people to whom Paul had brought the gospel. And Paul is reminding them that he knew them. He knew what they were like before they were in Christ. He says, not many were wise. Not many were mighty. Not many are noble. But what had happened? As their lives had been transformed, as they had grown in knowledge, as they had grown in wisdom and understanding, they had begun to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And so what the apostle does, and what's profound about what the apostle does here is he tells them the first step in regaining the humility that they ought to have is to have a right assessment of what they were when they were outside of Christ. You know, there is nothing, there is nothing more unbecoming than a believer whose life has been transformed, who speaks with pride, and, and who speaks with arrogance, and who speaks in terms of self-dependence. And yet all of us do it. And the apostle comes to this church that he knows so well, and he reminds them that they were foolish, and they were weak, and they were noble, and, and that God had chosen them. He takes them back to the doctrine of election, and he strips them of anything they might hold on to. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world, and the weak things of the world, and the base things of the world, the things that are not, God has chosen. And that's wonderful, because at the end of the day, we are all foolish and weak, we are base, we are ennoble. You know, I, I had one of those radical conversions that a few in here maybe had out of extreme darkness, and 
And yet, when I counsel people in my church, uh, the people that often need to be reminded the most of their foolishness and baseness and weakness before they were in Christ are people that never had extreme rebellion in their life who always did well, who made, did well in school, who married their high school sweetheart, everything seemed to go their way, and, and at the end of the day, they really don't know their spiritual condition. And so the apostle's reminding everyone, he's reminding us, though he says not many, and obviously there were some who, who were noble and who were wise according to the world's standards and who had some sense of power at the end of the day, God chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world in order to put to shame the things that are mighty. And then the apostle does something wonderful. He, he takes what the Corinthians were before they were in Christ. He tells them how God shows them in that state, in that condition, when they were hopeless, when they didn't have anything to, to make them attractive to God, to present them in any way to the Lord, and then, he, and then he brings it right into the doctrine of union with Christ. And he says, he's chosen the foolish things of the world, and of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, I think what Paul has done here in this exhortation to the church in Corinth and this reminder of who they were before they were in Christ is he is stirring them up to understand the sufficiency of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Jesus, that every single thing that they have, every single thing that you have, every single thing that I have is only and ever because of Jesus Christ. There is not one part of the Christian life that is lived outside of union with Jesus Christ. And we say we know that, and we profess to believe that, and then the way we speak, and the way we act, and the way we treat others, and the way we act with sinful pride and ambition and a million other things betrays that we don't really remember that and know that as we ought. And so the apostle is fixing their eyes on Jesus. Notice in verse 30, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And he does this. He does this. This is wonderful. Archibald Alexander puts it this way. He says, the religion of the gospel is calculated to remove every occasion of glorying from the creature. As men are prone to value themselves on account of their wisdom and earthly greatness, therefore it pleased God to select his people from that class of men who are contemptible in the eyes of the world and to put them into the same Christ by which they are justified, sanctified, and will ultimately realize full redemption and glorification. And so that means that the Christian life is a life hidden in Jesus Christ. It's a life of clinging to Jesus Christ. It's a life of giving him glory. And twice in this section... The apostle reminds them of the implications. First, in verse 29, he says that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then again, in verse 31, he says that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So that what Paul is saying, it's, it's like scales. And when I put anything of my own accomplishment or self or giftedness or status or performance or social standing or anything else on there, God doesn't get the glory he should get. But when Christ is put on the scales and you see that anything and everything you happen to be as a believer is only because of Jesus, then this goes up 
and God gets the glory, and no flesh glories in his presence. I, I think it's interesting, just as an aside, that this is really, and you'll know this, this is really the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He'll write two more. Second Corinthians is probably fourth Corinthians. And they haven't learned it. They have not learned it. Different issues, same foundational problem. Paul is having to remind them again so many years later of the same issue. It's one of those things. One of the reasons I, I love the book that Anna gave me so much is I, I feel that I need it so much. I, need, I, I feel like I need more humility. I need more brokenness. I need, I need, I need more of my pride demolished. And, and one of the wonderful things is that God gives us this to remind us and to, to remind us of what we were before we were in Christ, how we were hopeless and helpless and perishing and lost and wandering and living for the flesh, hating God, hating one another, all the things that Paul says, dead in sins and trespasses, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And yet the way we speak about the others often shows that we don't believe that about ourselves. And that's a very painful thing to come face to face with. You know, I, I had the privilege, as I've preached through Genesis this past year of reading through Calvin's um, sermons, the two volumes that bring you up to Genesis chapter 20. If you've never done that, I really recommend you get those and read those. And one of the things I started to notice is that Calvin is a very simple preacher. Calvin actually gives very plain and clear and simple exposition, but one of the things that Calvin does in a way I have never seen it done in almost any other uh, sermon series that you might read in church history is he is always going back to the innate pride that's in the hearts of men and that's in the hearts of the people in the church. He's always trying to, he's always bringing the doctrine of depravity in every single sermon. You almost get tired of it. And then you realize how desperately you need to hear it. He is always bringing it back in. And, and he'll say things like, and because we are such vile creatures, because there is so much pride remaining in us, because we, we rush to exalt ourselves at the smallest accolade, we need to remember how despicable we are, how, how foolish we are, how, how easily we turn away from our maker. And I think the apostle, in some ways, doing that for this church, helping them to see that there's nothing, absolutely nothing about themselves by which they were commended to God. But then the apostle does something else, and I, I think it's fascinating that he moves from this exhortation to this church um, to a sort of self-attestation of his own motivation and determination in gospel ministry. And, and I think it's interesting because if anyone could have boasted, because at the end of the day, unless you have spent time in the immediate presence of Jesus, learning directly from Jesus, having learned as a young man from the feet, at the feet of the greatest Jewish rabbi, um, having had visions of the third heavens, um, and, and having had things revealed to you that, that were so amazing, there weren't even human words to explain them. 
Like you have absolutely, you have absolutely no reason to boast in comparison with the Apostle Paul. This man, if anybody had reason to boast, it was the Apostle Paul. You know, he had so much revelation and, and so much self-awareness, which is one of those really rare things, I think. I've learned that in ministry is self-awareness is an incredibly rare thing in our lives. Um, he had so much self-awareness that he actually says in, in, I believe, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that because of the abundance of revelation given to me, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan was given to me to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Like, God gave him so much knowledge and revelation that Paul had to have a satanic buffeting to keep him humble. And he recognized that he needed that. That's the irony, because when we read what the Apostle Paul is going to say here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and what you read about the Apostle Paul in all of his letters, he, he seems like he is the most humble minister you have ever met in your life, and probably is. And yet, simultaneously, he recognizes that in his heart, he has this, this tendency to be exalted among the people. And I think if we read Romans 7 like we should read it in the old sense, he knows that there are times he doesn't do the things he wants to do and he does the things he doesn't want to do, and that includes thinking highly of himself. And yet the apostle deals with it. And notice what he says. He says, and I... And as for you, remember your calling. Remember what you were before you were in Christ. Remember that everything you have is in Jesus. And I, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, what Paul does here is marvelous. He, he empties the gospel ministry of anything he has personally. So he, he empties his ministry of any of his own accomplishments, achievement, um, now, there's a lot of debate. What does he mean? I mean, was Paul saying, don't study rhetoric? No, of course not. Of course you should want to be the most skillful preacher you can be. Of course the Apostle Paul would tell you you should want to be the most diligent student you can be. The Apostle Paul would tell you to get as much theological knowledge as you can get. And yet, he is essentially saying that we ought not trust in those things and we ought not trust in how we say what we say in order to bring about change in people's lives or to draw undue attention to ourselves. And I think the apostle is saying lots of things in these verses. And I, I think as we look at this, that what he is saying is that the, the key to him emptying himself of any fleshly pride in gospel ministry is his determination not to know anything among the people of God except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I, I'm sure some of you are, are thinking right now, well, I mean, does that mean, are you saying that, are you saying that um, the apostle only preached sermons in which he just preached the crucifixion of Jesus, he just preached the atonement, and that's all he did? Um, no. 
I think the apostle preached, as we know from scripture, against such things as anxiety and, and, and fear and paying pastors well and marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness and church government, life among the congregation, spiritual gifts, the sacraments, and on and on and on. The apostle talked about many other things. And so then the question is, is this just hyperbole? Is Paul just saying, but this is the really important thing. And, and as long as it makes its way most of the time into the preaching, that's sufficient. Or when the text explicitly holds forth the crucified Jesus is when we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. No, I think what the apostle is saying very clearly is that whatever he taught from the scriptures, whatever he proclaimed to the people of God, he did in relationship to the gospel. And he did directly in relationship to the gospel. I'm going to take you through 1 Corinthians to try to prove just from this book how he did this. Um, there's this remarkable way in which Paul moves from subject to subject, and yet he always comes right back to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. He always comes right back to the accomplishment of redemption. And he does it in chapter 1 when he addresses those divisions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? That's the solution to divisions in the church. You are forgetting if you are putting your favorite men on pedestals over here and saying we are with these people over here. Paul is saying but Christ was crucified and, and all that you are, you are only because of Jesus and because he died for you and he died for all your other brothers and sisters in the faith. And so Jesus Christ and him crucified is the solution to divisions. And then if he's dealing with sin, in the lives of the members of the church, they are in chapter 6, I believe. He says, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. How do I flee sexual immorality? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Glorify God now in your body and spirit. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Because you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Because he owned you. He purchased you with his blood. And so the gospel deals with that issue of sexual immorality and immorality of all sorts of natures. And then when he comes to talk about faithful gospel ministry in chapter 3, and he's talking about being a wise master builder and using gold and silver and precious stones, the costly things, the things that take time and diligence, not just heaping up wood, hay, and stubble. And, and Paul's talking about he and Apollos and their ministry. And then he says, but no other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Christ. He goes right back to Jesus. He goes right back to the cornerstone. And then when he deals with the issue of church discipline in chapter 5, and this one is wonderful, because the church so desperately needs church discipline. And you will lose members when you try in a God-honoring way to obey the Lord in the process of carrying out church discipline. And why do we do church discipline? And you may say, well, because Jesus commanded it in Matthew chapter 18, and that is certainly true. And there are many purposes to church discipline, and there are many reasons why it needs to be done. But the apostle there in chapter 5 says, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Why do church discipline? Christ, the Passover lamb, was nailed to the tree. 
That's why we do church discipline. And then when he comes to chapter 6 and he gives that warning that, oh, please tell me you understand this. When you read that, it makes you tremble. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, that's all, everybody. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then in chapter 8, he comes to the issue of conscience and liberty of conscience and the weaker and the stronger are brothers. And if you ever preach through 1 Corinthians, you're going to hate preaching chapter 8 on. It's very difficult. Very difficult. Paul's arguments are very difficult. But you know what's not difficult? He says in chapter 8 that we ought to treat the weaker and the stronger brother appropriately in our interactions because he is, Paul says, quote, the brother for whom Christ died. The brother for whom Christ died. And then um, obviously, chapter 15, the resurrection hope. And he says there at the head of that chapter, I gave to you those things of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And, and Paul leads into that glorious defense of the resurrection in light of what Jesus did at Calvary. And then if you move into Ephesians, he deals with marriage as a picture of Christ in the church, and on and on and on and on. Everywhere, every aspect of the Christian's life and the life of the church is inevitably drawn out of what Jesus has done in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. And so you can understand that the apostle understands that that is the solution, that is the cure to having a humble gospel ministry. And, and if any, I think he sees a danger. I think the apostle understands that there's a danger that, that if... if if Jesus Christ and him crucified is not being preached and, and uh, men are being exalted and people are saying, oh, what a wonderful preacher you are and how much knowledge you have and I love the books you wrote and on and on and on and on. You're getting glory and Jesus isn't. And that's a very bad thing. And I think the apostle knows that unless Jesus Christ and him being crucified is preached, people are going to put their trust in men. He says that, notice he says in verse 5 that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, there is so much more that I could say about this passage, but I want to I just talk to you about a few things as you enter into a new academic year in preparation um, for your own gospel ministries, especially to the students. Um, There are so many ways that pride can manifest itself. And we love to sit back and say, we're not like the megachurch guy that's a complete narcissist. And we love to talk about how terrible the megachurch guy is. And when he falls, see, I told you that was bad. And we can be just as proud with 30, 40, 50, 100, 150, 200 people. Just as proud. Be just as full of ourselves. And we can hide a lot. We can hide a lot of that pride. Um, as you go into this year, you, you give yourself, you don't need me to tell you this, you know this, give yourself to a diligent study of the scriptures first and foremost and, and read 
Calvin and Turden and Bavink and Burkhoff and Reed, everybody you can. Now we have this whole world of post-Reformation scholasticism. And there's dangers because you're going to read things most people in the church won't read. And you're going you're gonna to face the temptation of thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. And that's a very real danger. And at the end of the day, we are nothing and we have nothing outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think there's other dangers. Maybe you'll be one of these guys that struggles with wanting acceptance and, and don't, don't think that you're, you are immune to um, wanting acceptance with the world. Um, many, many men have gone off the reservation because they've wanted to make a name for themselves. They've wanted academic clout. They've moved on from humble beginnings and they have taken a sharp detour because they thought they would get some kind of sophisticated attention. I want to read to you a quote. I found this as a young Christian. Uh, Roger Wagner, uh, pastor in California, wrote this in his little book on the preaching in Acts. He said, no PhD degree will make acceptable to the world a message that they find supremely foolish. Let that sink in. No PhD will make acceptable to the world a message that they find supremely foolish. So if, if you do go on to do graduate studies and postgraduate studies and you get PhDs and you, and you write books and you continue to hold forth Christ, just know the world is not going to find it any less foolish. In fact, he says, the more effective you are in making that message known, the more certain you can be that the unregenerate will mock and reject it. If your academic studies make you a substantially better exegete, theologian, and preacher, wonderful. But don't get your feelings hurt when your degrees cannot buy you intellectual respectability. I think that is a profoundly important word and one that you will find to be true as you labor to be diligent in propagating the truths that God is entrusting to you. I think there's also a sense in which you've got to prepare yourselves for the hardships. You've got to prepare for the hardships that are going to come from preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, you know, it's always been one of those things I've struggled with that the message that we love the most and, and can't hear enough is the message that many in the church do not want to hear. I had a friend say recently, uh, people can have their ears tickled with licentiousness and with legalism. So, so when people don't like to hear the message of Christ crucified, when they don't want to hear about the crucified Lord Jesus, they will readily listen to either some form of antinomianism or some form of legalism that tickles their ears. But they will hate the gospel. I had a young man, this was very painful, I had a young man this year um, sit down with me and an elder on his way out of the church. You always kind of wonder... Why, why can't other people leaving the church sit down with you and this guy not? But uh, sat down and, and, he, and he said, I'm so tired of hearing trust Jesus. I, I, wow. I was blown away. We should tremble at the thought that people feel that in their hearts. But the Apostle Paul said, I determined. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, as you men progress with your studies, as you go out from here, as you get calls into the pastorate, make that your determination. Um, it's impossible 
It's impossible to be proud and to sit at the foot of the cross simultaneously. It is an absolute impossibility. If we are acting in pride and selfishness, and if we are, if we are acting uh, for self-aggrandizement, for our own namesake, for our own glory, and maybe you and the Lord are the only ones that know. Maybe you can hide that very well as a reserved person. Just know that that betrays that you are not sitting at the foot of the cross. Because it's impossible to see Jesus Christ in my place, condemned, beaten, mocked, bruised, spit on, nailed to a tree. It's impossible to see that and to be proud. It is an absolute impossibility to see that with spiritual eyes and to walk away and try to make a name for yourself or to promote your own kingdom or your own cause or whatever. It is, and you know what? And it'll come out. It will most certainly start to come out in the preaching. It may happen gradually. Christ doesn't get preached so much. You know, well, we're preaching great ethical discourses. Well, if your ethics are not fueled by the gospel, then it's just legalism. It's just moralism. Um, maybe it'll happen, and, and it happens to so many men. They get very good at telling stories, and, and people love stories. I'm very bad at telling stories, so I just don't try. People love a good story. Um, but when you preach about Jesus... Crickets. Um, Gerhardus Voss, and I'll close with this because I've always found this very helpful personally. He has a sermon um, on the Lord's Supper, and and he says, "Look, not not every one of your sermons is going to be an evangelistic message, in the in that sense of an evangelistic meeting." Not every one of your sermons. That's not what Paul's saying here. But, but what Voss says is that if you want to know whether the purport of your sermon is actually meeting the criteria of the Apostle Paul's standard, not to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified, then you need to ask the question whether the purport of your message and the purport of the supper are one and the same. So if, if you can move from your sermon to the supper... And you haven't brought the gospel in, and now you bring it in at the supper, there's a problem. You should be able to move seamlessly from whatever you've preached into the message of the gospel. The purport of the message and the purport of the supper should be one and the same. I'll, I'll read to you just these closing words that Voss says there. He says, I sometimes feel as what is most needed is a sense of proportion in our presentation of this truth, a new sense of where the center of gravity in the gospel lies, a return to the ideal of Paul, who determined not to know anything among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and here's what he says. He says, whatever topic you preach on, whatever text you choose, and I do hope you preach textually, there ought not to be in your whole repertoire a single sermon in which from beginning to end you do not convey to your hearers the impression that what you want to impart to them, you do not think it possible to impart to them in any other way than as a correlate and consequence of their eternal salvation of their souls through the blood of Jesus because in your own conviction that alone is the remedy which you can honestly offer a sinful world. I will summarize that never allow the people to whom you preach if the lord calls you in the ministry 
get the sense that what you're calling them and yourself to do from the scriptures, they can do apart from their salvation in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins in his blood, the empowering of his spirit, the without me you can do nothing. Never give them the sense that they can go and they can live out the Christian life apart from the Savior, who is the only Savior of sinners. Um, I just want to say a word to all of us as I close. As, as I noted at the outset, it's one of those singular providences, I feel like, in my life that the Lord had my wife get that book. She didn't know what she was buying me. She just knew I liked old books and Puritans. And, um, and, and I think the Lord put that book in my hand the night I proposed to my wife because he wants me to learn this and that it's going to take a whole life to learn this. God, God is constantly teaching us this. And, and so I want to I encourage everybody in this room, as you consider your life, as you, as you consider your words and your actions and your events and your activities, what does it betray about you? Not, not about others. Don't think about others right now. Don't think about proud people you know. Where is there pride in our lives? And here's the beauty. When we see that pride, we go to the same place that keeps us from the pride. From the pride we go to the foot of the cross and we cling to the Savior and we cry out for forgiveness and we cry out for mercy and we cry out that he uproots all the pride out of our hearts. And as we see more of it, we keep going back to him. I, I was just speaking with my dad about uh, John Newton's hymn. I asked the Lord, I love those words. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And then the end of that hymn says, it's in this way. The Lord says, I answer prayer for grace and faith. As he reveals pride in us that we would go back to the Lord Jesus. We'd remember what we were when he chose us, when we were nothing and foolish. And that we would look at the determination of the Apostle Paul and we would make that our own. Let him who has ears to hear this evening... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge how desperately we need these truths to change us. And we thank you for every word that you have breathed out. And we thank you for this portion of scripture. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge our foolish pride. We acknowledge that we are too quick to exalt ourselves and too quick to put others down. And, and we forget what we were before we were in you. And we forget that you are wisdom from God for us and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And Father, we pray that you would heal us. We pray that you would give us singleness of mind and focus. We pray that you would grant us true gospel-produced humility. We pray for these men as they continue their preparation for gospel ministry, that you would give them that grace and that you would give it to all of us throughout the totality of the years that you might give us in ministry. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ crucified. We pray that we would know more of his wisdom and power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.